0: WHMP.
1: This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman.
2: And I am Buzz Eisenberg.
1: We have a bit of a fish wrap for you today. Today's newspaper's tomorrow's fish wrap. Front page, top of the fold, bold headline in today's Republican. Trump, I have been indicted to appear in court Tuesday. Sources say this is the Washington Post story. Former President Donald Trump said last night he's been charged by the Justice Department in connection with the discovery that hundreds of classified documents were taken to his Mar-a-Lago home after he left the White House. This is a seismic event in the nation's political and legal history. There is a large photograph of Donald Trump and this quote from him. I have been indicted, seemingly over the boxes, hoax. I never thought it possible that such a thing could happen to a former president of the United States, all in caps. I am an innocent man, so says Trump. Very telling. I never thought this such a thing could happen to a former president of the United States because he is, well, above the law, apparently, according to the thought process of one former president, Donald Trump. But it is right, as far as I'm concerned, what the Post has, Washington Post has as part of its reporting, which is this is a seismic event. The Justice Department does not indict, unless it thinks that there is a very strong probability of conviction, and unless that conviction is likely to end with a sentence of incarceration.
2: Well, just, uh, we all remember, it was a grand jury that decided to indict. It was...
1: uh, A grand jury, look, the old adage is a grand jury could indict a ham sandwich. A grand jury does what prosecutors ask them to do 99.99% of the time. This is a Justice Department event yes, the grand jury has to indict because the Justice Department can't on its own indict, but the Justice Department sought this indictment and asked the grand jury to return the indictment, and the grand jury did what it was asked to do.
2: Well, I, yeah, if I was sitting there and it was a former president, I'd be listening awfully carefully to the evidence that was being presented. and So uh, well, I, I think that it's... Well, he hasn't seen all the evidence that's been presented yet. but I know. It'll be really interesting Tuesday to hear what the actual... Uh, we'll see
1: if it's a talking indictment, a speaking indictment, and how, how detailed it is. But Trump is in a lot of trouble. This is a seismic event. Another very significant event yesterday, the United States Supreme Court headlined New York Times. Obviously, the New York Times went to print, the published edition went to print before the indictment story was uh, fully developed or in, not in time to make the... Uh, uh, physical edition of the New York Times today. In turnabout, court rules map denied black voters. Surviving pillar of civil rights stays intact. Surviving pillar of civil rights stays intact with Alabama redistricting case. We are going to talk about this many times on the show. This is another really extraordinary event in the history of the court and the country. This is the survival of section 2 of the voting rights act which most commentators including myself thought was probably dead but it has survived by a 5 to 4 vote and it will have significant impact not only the rights of african americans and other minority groups to vote in the united states and to be represented uh, in local and federal legislatures but as well it will show that there is some some tenacity some vibrancy, uh, some life to the Voting Rights Act that many of us thought the Supreme Court was about to put to death, and it didn't. Very interesting, a five to four vote. And then one other matter we should note, Pat Robertson has died, the broadcaster who made, religious, who made religion central to the GOP and its politics and ran for president has passed. He was a really important figure in American politics. He made the Christian right the powerful force it is in American politics. I don't think that his passing will necessarily change the, that dynamic. It is now baked into our political structure and the fabric of the country. So much going on. Let us turn now, if I might, uh, if we might, to Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers' Association. Max Page, I'd like to have you focus, if you would, please, for us on some Massachusetts developments that are happening today, Mm -hmm. this week, and next week. So from your perspective, from your perch as president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, significant matters in state politics and state policy. Tell us what you see.
3: Thanks, Bill and and Buzz. Good morning. Yes, those are some epic events going on nationwide, but there were some important developments here in the ongoing budget debate, which can get really weedy quickly, but is so fundamental to whether we are able to invest in our public schools and colleges, transportation, um, rural schools, uh, and rural aid, as, our, your, as your next speaker will, will likely wanna talk about as well. So the Senate um, yesterday uh, announced its tax uh, program, tax reform bill, um, and they very noticeably left out uh, hundreds of millions of dollars that were, that in my mind, are pure giveaways to the very, the very rich. That is in um, opposition to what the governor proposed and what the House of Representatives passed. So um, I'm saying this because this is a, this is frankly the ongoing debate about uh, what happens to the Fair Share Amendment. That is the Millionaire's Tax. That MTA and its partners in the raise up mass coalition helped pass this past November, an epic um, long term change to ask the very wealthiest to pay a little bit more for public schools and colleges and transportation systems. Unfortunately, there's been effort to give some of that back by giving major tax cuts to the very wealthiest. And the Senate said, you know what? We don't want to do that. We're going to give a bunch of tax cuts to working people and middle income. Households around um, making housing a little more affordable, childcare more affordable, giving, um, providing money for support for people caring for the elderly and disabled. There's a a number of, um, you know, tax cuts that are targeted for working people, but they said no to the most regressive of all, uh, which is to give to lower the rate on short term capital gains that's, uh, you know, that's the money one makes from back and forth stock selling. The vast, vast majority of um, those capital gains are made by the very wealthiest. So this was, in our minds, a pure giveaway. And we're glad that the Senate has at least said no. Now we see what happens to uh, in the debate uh, between the House and the Senate as they resolve both the budget and their differences in their tax packages.
1: So where does it go now, to a committee to be reconciled between the House and Senate, and how does it get reconciled given that there will, how to put this, irreconcilable differences?
3: Well, it, with all due respect to um, Beacon Hill, uh, this is now when it moves to the back rooms. Literally, there's a conference committee that will go probably radio silent, meaning the the, the, the members of that conference committee will not really speak to the public. Um, And we'll go try to work out the differences in their budget and at some point, whether during the budget process or a little bit after they will work on this tax package. It's a little unclear whether it all gets done in one in one place or whether they're sequential. That is resolve the budget and then resolve this tax reform um, recommendations, but it's all will pretty much recede from public view, which is, of course, frustrating for those who are not in the legislature. Frankly, it'll probably recede from view from most senators and representatives and be very focused in on that conference committee as well as the leadership of the two houses, probably in dialogue with the governor. But we're gonna keep pushing very hard. Um, In fact, we have a action for our members and anyone else massteacher.org slash no giveaways, urging that there not be these massive giveaways um, to the rich because that's going against what we did in November which is to pass a uh, a historic, century-long effort to uh, ask the very wealthiest to pay a little more so we can have uh, the public schools and colleges and transportation systems that we deserve.
1: Okay, so one quick follow-up on the substance and then one on the process. Let's look at the process for a minute. The Senate and the House have a substantial disagreement. One has a tax giveaway to the very rich who want to make money and do make millions and millions of dollars on day trading, not on investing, but it's swapping stocks and bonds back and forth and the like. And those profits, uh, that income should be taxed regularly, one body says, and the other says, no, 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 we're going to give that money, we're going to make that a special tax haven for the very, very rich. It's a substantial disagreement on policy that's been very public, and now it goes to a back room where it gets decided and then it comes out and then there's no more debate. It's an up or down vote in the House or Senate. What kind of a messed up, to my view, uh, uh, process is that?
3: Uh, well, Bill, we we don't have a great record on transparency um, in the in the legislature, I, um, and there's been you know national studies about how the lack of transparency. We we should have more um, clarity, openness about these debates. I fully agree. It is possible that those those differences will be too large to resolve right away And there. Who knows? They may kick it down the the can down the road uh, on the coming month. They don't have to make these tax decisions right away. I do suspect that they will try to work something out um, in the coming month. The the legislature uh, is supposed to have a budget by July 1. We almost never make that. Uh, So it's possible that with this tax uh, reform issue floating out there, we will uh, it'll go who knows, maybe to the end, end of July.
1: Okay. Well, Max Page, thank you for addressing both the substance and the process. I really appreciate that. And we really appreciate your being with us today. I know you got to run. Thanks so much for your time. Max Page did mention our next guest, and our next guest will be State Representative Natalie Blay. And we're going to talk about exactly those issues, which Max has raised. Max Page, thanks so much for your time.
0: Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Meet Business West 40 Under 40. Tickets to the June 15th event are sold out, but the program will be live streamed starting at 6.30 p.m. on businesswest.com. 40 Under 40 is presented by People's Bank and sponsored by Comcast Business, Live Nation, The Markins Group, Mercedes-Benz of Springfield, MGM Springfield, Eisenberg School of Management at UMass Amherst, and Weber Grinnell Insurance. Meet the honorees and watch the celebration online at businesswest.com. Find out who is named the Alumni Achievement Honoree presented by Health New England
3: at greenfield cooperative bank it pays to get pre-approved if you're looking to buy a home right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs we make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations our local experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th. Be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC.
2: Member DIF.
4: You can count on your friends at the co
2: How many great books have you read? What's the next great book you'll read? Find it at the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair, Saturday, June 17th. 10 bookstores including Broadside, thousands of books, a book browsing paradise. Yes, there's fiction. Yes, there's poetry and children's books. First editions, limited editions, art books, signed books. For a book lover, it's an afternoon in book heaven. Join Broadside and 10 more bookstores for the Northampton Outdoor Book Fair in the Plaza Behind Thorns, Saturday, June 17th, 11 to 6. What's the next great book you'll read?
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: We welcome back to the show State Representative Natalie Blay. Representative Blay represents a significant rural district. We'll ask you to tell us where it is for those of our listeners who don't know. <laughs> and interestingly, as Buzz just pointed out to us during the break, on yesterday's Greenfield Recorder front page, three stories all of which involve your legislative priorities and your efforts. One story about libraries, one story about a class project inspiring inspiration from Frontier Regional School, a third story on doors open on the uh, Rural Transportation Authority facility, uh, and then there's a story as well about the st- state formalizing the forestry role in the carbon admissions fight. So much that you're involved in and so many important issues. Uh, would like you to, well, tell us which one of these stories most moves you in terms of your efforts and legislative priorities. Representative Blay.
5: Thanks, Bill. And to your original question, uh, I, I do represent the 1st Franklin District, which includes 18 communities in Franklin County. Uh, pretty much if you start at the Vermont border in Bernardston, I have the Southern half of Greenfield, Leverett, Sunderland, Deerfield, West, uh, all the way to the Berkshires. Uh, Those are the 18 communities of the the first Franklin District. And uh, I've been lucky enough, as as Buzz knows, and I think we talked on the last show, to be attending a lot of the town meetings uh, in these communities, most recently in Bernardston. Um, But in terms of your second question, uh, what was most impactful on that front page was the students. Um, You know, I, I met with these Frontier Regional District students last year, in their eighth grade class as they were looking at their civics action projects. And uh, Anna Haskins, Greta Hale, and Malcolm Howard uh, brought forward an idea to ensure that ingredients on menstrual products were included on the packaging. Believe it or not, it is not required that the FDA, the federal agency, it is it does not regulate what it, what is included on the packaging and as a result, these students said that is a problem for us not to know what we are putting into our bodies and very close to our bodies. Um, pads tampons menstrual cups and discs and are considered men- medical devices by the FDA and for us not to know. What is contained in these products was a real problem for these students. Uh, so we've been working with them in the meantime, We int- Senator Comerford and I introduced an act relative to menstrual product ingredient disclosure. Uh, we've stayed in touch with these students, and on Tuesday, they and their parents drove to the State House and testified uh, before the Joint Committee on Public Health. And I have to say that they their testimony was incredibly impactful, and it's not a day that I will soon forget.
1: When you say testified before a joint committee, a joint committee being a committee that's comprised of both senators and House representatives, and you say testify, what did did they do? How many were there and what were their points?
5: Yeah, so the three students, Anna, Malcolm, and Greta, uh, each took their turn before the joint committee, which uh, the Senate chair is Julian Sear from the Cape, the House chair is Marjorie Decker from Cambridge, and each one of them spoke to why they felt it was important to talk with us about this legislation, this this proposal, first of all, um, and why they've continued to work on it. And it, one of the students said, "You know, we we know what is in the ingredients of the food that we put into our body, but we don't know necessarily what is on the menstrual products that we're putting into our body." And that was that's a compelling point, and it seemed. Like, it was a good thing for us to do as Massachusetts. We've been national leaders when the federal government has failed to act. And it feels like this is another instance where we could possibly do this in, at the state level in the absence of federal action.
1: So I am struck by the probability that notwithstanding the obvious nature of and the the, the importance and the I think, need for such a bill, such a piece of legislation, someone is going to, some industry group is going to oppose it? It's not clear sailing for the legislation? Or am I just being a pessimist?
5: (laughs) You know, I think that the voices of young people and certainly the public are impactful in these hearings. I really do. And the response from the committee chairs speaking to the leadership of these students, not only today, uh, but for tomorrow was uh, was really incredible for them to hear. Um, and I do think that, you know, a lot of times legislation that we pass often is the result of, you know, momentum that could have been happening for years on other bills that are pending before the legislature. Um, you know, as we're talking about providing menstrual products more publicly for free, uh, you know, my colleagues, several colleagues, have been working on that issue for years, um, and so there's a chance that we, if that we may be able to insert this language into a larger bill uh, that we could advance this session.
1: Is this the is this the but, bill that that uh, calls for uh, uh, menstrual products to be available on public college and university campuses? Is that what we're talking about?
5: That is that is one of the bills. Yes, absolutely. And you know, it's very rare for a bill to pass in its when it's first been introduced. And this bill, it, this is the first time we have introduced this piece of. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
4: we have a,
1: and we have a special, very special guest with Representative. A Blake, constituent uh, who has seems to have a lot on uh, their mind. Uh, uh, but at least we're not <laughs> we're not we're not going to be sub- we're well. not going to be subjected to a bunch of dog roll. Please go on. <laughs>
5: Sorry about that. That was my dog, Beau.
2: Uh, What's the
1: dog's weird. name? This is important.
2: <laughs> Bo. So, Representative Natalie Blay, I want to know, will the FDA, you think, uh, be paying attention to what happens in the Massachusetts legislature with respect to this uh, product labeling issue?
5: Yeah, I mean, I hope that the FDA will take action. In the absence of that action, there is a bill pending at the federal level that could address this issue. So... I think there are multiple ways, as we've discussed on this program before, there are multiple ways for for pieces of legislation or ideas to advance. Uh, In this particular instance, we have legislation pending at the state level. We have legislation pending at the federal level. And there is a federal agency that could act to ensure that ingredients are listed on menstrual product packaging.
1: So do you as a legislator or one of your colleagues or your staff Do you contact the FDA and say, hi, this is what we're considering? Uh, What do you guys have in mind? What do you think of this? Or is this just go down? This
5: legislation was actually based, you know, once the students brought it to us, we did some additional resource in our research in our office and found that similar bills had already been passed in California and New York. So looking at the federal legislation, looking at the bills passed in California and New York, we then modeled a piece of legislation and introduced it here in the Commonwealth.
2: So could we turn our attention um, to regional transit? I know that's something that in the community that I live in is very important to people and people are hoping that someday we'll be able to see public transportation come out uh, in the hill towns. Um, so it looks like there's some movement in that regard.
5: Yeah, we were lucky to attend and I was grateful to be there with the feder- the Franklin County delegation, including the uh, Representative Aaron Saunders, who now represents part of Franklin County, and Representative Susanna Whips, who I now share Greenfield with. Uh, The Franklin Regional Transit Authority has been working on a maintenance facility since I started working for John Oliver, if not before. I believe it's been 25 years that they've been working on a maintenance facility, and just we're having a difficulty um, identifying a location and identifying funding. Uh, So after years and years of hard work uh, and dedication (laughs) and not giving up, uh, the FRTA, the Franklin Regional Transit Authority, uh, opened a new $12 million facility that was funded with both state and federal dollars. It's located in Montague, so this was a real partnership between the city of Greenfield, where. Uh, The previous facility was located in the town of Montague, who wanted to receive, you know, this facility. Um, It's it's an incredible – the building itself will certainly exceed uh, energy performance requirements. It's a modern area. It includes indoor storage for buses. And while it took a very long time to accomplish, it certainly helps to serve our constituents uh, here in, in Franklin County and coupled with the pvta's facility that they opened in 2019 uh, we really do have a state-of-the-art maintenance facility um, facilities between frta and pvta Um, so i'm I'm really excited for them i'm especially excited for the bus drivers and the maintenance workers who were working out of a really horrific facility Um, and they just made it work for them with with band-aids and duct tape, and now they're in a state-of-the-art of facility, um, working every day to provide on-time, reliable public transportation to residents of the Franklin of Franklin County.
2: I was astonished. Mass Inc. just um, uh, released surveys that it was doing. I was astonished at the extent to which people want more investment in public transportation statewide. I think 79 percent. This was only a. 1,500-respondent uh, survey, but nevertheless, uh, almost 80%, and and uh, he, out here, I think it's something like 77%. So um, there's a real push to increase public transportation.
1: But there's also a real controversy and a real conflict here, Representative, which is that the, sta- the eastern part of the state wants money for the T, and mm-hmm. you want money for regional transportation authorities, and I'm wondering whether or not you see that conflict as being resolvable?
5: I do, uh, but I'm forever an optimist. Uh, I do think that there is a growing awareness uh, in the Commonwealth, particularly in light of the climate change um, emergency that we're seeing, that a reliable, safe public transportation system is necessary for our entire Commonwealth, not just the MBTA. Uh, But in the 250 communities that are served by the 15 regional transit authorities across the Commonwealth. And our RTAs have shown that they are responsible stewards of taxpayer dollars. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, we know from this incredible Mass Inc. poll that was just done, um, we now have the data to really point to why we need to increase that investment. Uh, we know that the RTA services are connecting residents with medical care, with you know, shopping and errands, with health care appointments, to work, to visiting friends and family. And uh, we also know that 40 percent of RTAs are unable to provide seven-day-a-week service. We know that 53 percent of RTAs do not provide service after 9 p.m. So I I do believe that there's a growing awareness about the real necessary investment that we need to put into the operating dollars for our regional transit authorities so that they can be innovative with programs like the micro transit program that we're seeing in Franklin County, where fixed routes may not work. You know, a fixed route, whether it's a short bus or a large bus is not necessarily work in Ashfield, but micro transit on demand service, Um, with with a smaller vehicle that is scheduled for you specifically may be something that works. And we've seen success in a pilot project in Franklin County to do just that. They can't do that if we don't invest in them. And so those are the points that we are trying to make to our MBTA colleagues who are served by the MBTA. Yes, absolutely. Their constituents 100% deserve safe, reliable public transportation. So do we. And that's what we're trying to work with them on.
1: We're speaking with State Representative Natalie Blay, representative from the 1st Franklin District. When we come back, I want to ask about the top-of-the-fold headline in yesterday's recorder about funding for libraries, including the Amherst Library and another 1700000 million that's been a controversial issue in Amherst. The library, how much will be spent on it, and how big will it be? And we'll talk about that right after this break.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
6: This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media.
7: Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden vetó el miércoles una legislación que habría cancelado su plan para perdonar la deuda estudiantil. «Es una vergüenza para las familias trabajadoras de todo el país que los legisladores continúen con este intento sin precedentes de negar un alivio crítico a millones de sus propios electores», dijo Biden en un comunicado al anunciar su veto. A pesar del veto, el plan de Biden aún no es seguro. La Corte Suprema de los Estados Unidos, dominada por una mayoría conservadora, está revisando un desafío legal que podría eliminar El programa. Se espera una decisión este verano. Si se promulga, el plan de Biden perdonaría hasta 20 mil dólares en deuda de préstamos estudiantiles federales para prestatarios que ganen menos de 125 mil dólares por año. Los pagos de préstamos estudiantiles se detuvieron al comienzo de la pandemia de COVID-19. Sin embargo, se reanudarán en agosto para cualquier persona cuya deuda no sea eliminada por el plan de Biden. En otras informaciones, el ex vicepresidente Mike Pence, que sirvió lealmente a Donald Trump durante cuatro años, criticó el miércoles a su ex jefe por el ataque al Capitolio de Estados Unidos en 2021, mientras lanzaba su campaña para la nominación presidencial republicana de 2024. Pence emitió su condena más contundente hasta la fecha del papel de Trump en el ataque del 6 de enero, cuando los partidarios del entonces presidente irrumpieron en el Congreso de los Estados Unidos para tratar de evitar que los legisladores certificaran la victoria electoral de Joe Biden. Creo que cualquiera que se ponga por encima de la Constitución nunca debería ser presidente de Estados Unidos. Y cualquiera que le pidiera a alguien más que lo pusiera por encima de la Constitución nunca debería volver a ser presidente de Estados Unidos, dijo Pence en un discurso en Iowa que da inicio a la competencia por la nominación republicana el próximo año. Yo soy Johan Rashe Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP.
6: This News Update State in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with State Representative Natalie Blay, representative from the 1st Franklin District and I think some 18 communities that she represents. I want to ask the representative, we want to ask the representative about funding for libraries and a really important and contentious sometimes issue uh, over the past six months, or a year here in Western Massachusetts. But I'd like to return, if I might, to the conversation we were having during the break, which returned to menstruation and products. And you had mentioned, Representative, that you were addressing this issue with a number of students. I'd like to know where and when. And a number of those students, or a majority of them, were, how to put this, of the male persuasion. And I would think that for high school students, a conversation like this would be, terribly awkward it's not great for us adults here on radio but how did you handle it what happened and what was the reception uh
5: you know i i take this it is just something that happens in our bodies right and so we want to normalize that as much as possible Uh, so it is important to me to talk about this with as many young people and adults as i can uh but you in i just stuck to the facts you know as we're talking with students um just talking about our bodies, how they work, how it is important for us to know and to be informed about what we are putting into our bodies is uh, is a critical thing. And I, I want to say that one of the important pieces that came out of the hearing on Tuesday was you know, the good work that Senator Comerford has been um, doing around PFAS and the fact that um, some products like Spanx, which are some, which is underwear that you can wear during your period that, that absorbs uh, blood, it, that has been found to contain PFAS. So you know, these are forever chemicals that we have been finding in our, in our water, um, in products that we use every day in the home. And to think that, you know, we could be potentially putting products like PFAS in or around our bodies Uh, was particularly uh, compelling i think certainly for the committee on public health
2: but how about for the kids in the classroom who were not females who were not menstrual how did they one of the
5: students one of the students who's been pushing this malcolm was tremendously impactful in his testimony before before the committee saying look this just does not impact me personally but it does impact people that i know uh it impacts you know, sisters and mothers and, and and aunts and others. And so, and I just rhymed with that. That was really something there. Uh, but it, it goes beyond who you are as an individual. And it makes us just be very aware of watching out for others and ensuring that if they are using these products, they understand what is included in them so that they can make informed decisions going forward.
1: Do you have a sense, Representative, that these students these young people are more mature uh <laughs> more sophisticated than how to put this we were
5: than me yes 100 <laughs> percent. it was something that my legislative aide corinne and i were talking about um they are incredible advocates and the thing that i love about the the civics projects that these students are doing which is a result of legislation that we passed is you know, they are getting the data necessary to make their cases, You know whether it's a poll or a survey or research or papers, whatever it happens to be, uh, they have the data behind what it is that they're talking about. And in many cases, they've surveyed their peers. And so not only are the voices of the people who are presenting these ideas lifted up, they're lifting up The voices of their peers, who they have surveyed to say, how is this impacting you? Um, In this year's classes, I've been going around and meeting with other students. We're talking about opioid addiction. We're talking about behavioral health. Um, We're talking about local food systems. I'm trying to think of the other topics. We're talking about providing um, sort of ways for accessibility in the classroom these are the issues that are top of mind for young people and yes i think that they are way ahead of where i was at that age and i'm not going to speak for the two of you (laughs) well i just
2: have to share one very short story when our daughter who is three three years older than our son i think she was in seventh grade when she got her period for the first time I was sent out to find mini pads at the local grocery store. I brought them back. And we found out later that day, it was announced at dinner time that our son, who was then in like fourth grade, they had a sharing time. He shared that his daughter got her period today and they chased each other for about her an sister, hour and a half. His sister. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> his sister. I'm sorry. His sister. Yeah. She wanted to kill him because she mentioned it. So it, it's so reassuring to hear that kids are actually so much more mature than we were even than they were yeah
5: yeah well hopefully they will they'll lead the commonwealth in this because they really are state leaders in helping us to introduce this legislation
1: so representative blay i'd like to turn to the top of the fold story in yesterday's recorder having to do with state funding new funding for local libraries the tilton library as well as the amherst library significant money with regard to uh the Tilton Library, some 472000 with regard to the Amherst Library, an additional $1.7 million in money from the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. And as for Amherst, later on, way down in the story in the jump page of the recorder, Just before we get to the end, it says this, the latest money for Jones Library, that's the Amherst Library, comes after U.S. Representative Jim McGovern last month announced $2.1 million in federal funding secured for the renovation and expansion. The focus on local libraries and their importance to communities, both for the fabric of our community and the life in the community, as well as the uh, economics of uh, the communities. Libraries are now a focus. Tell us how that came to be, and what you see as the uh, importance of this expanded funding, and why is it that the library commission uh, gets to decide this as opposed to the legislature? Mm.
5: Uh, it's a great question, and I want to appreciate you framing that up, Bill, because our libraries offer so much more than just books. Uh, you know they. They offer spaces for knitting and coffee and yoga. Uh, our children build Legos there, and they are concert spaces and art galleries. Sunderland Public Library is now offering kayaks to, to rent so that you can go right out and on the Connecticut River. They are the fabric of our communities. And what we saw in Amherst and Deerfield was each of those communities were awarded grants to help pay for construction of new libraries through the Massachusetts Public Library Construction Program. And that program helps communities across the Commonwealth improve their public library facilities um, through technical assistance, planning, design, construction, and in this case, both Amherst and Deerfield were awarded significant uh, amounts of money to construct new libraries. But as a result of the pandemic, we saw increases in Costs because of supply chain gaps, inflation, labor shortage, etc. And so many libraries saw extraordinary increases to the cost of their project across the state. Um, Senator Cummerford, Representative Dom, and myself worked together with legislators across the Commonwealth whose projects were impacted. There were 10 other communities whose projects were in jeopardy. We worked together the libraries worked together, the friends of libraries worked together uh, to really lift up the fact that these were circumstances beyond their control. And as a result of these project increases, some of them were on the chopping block. And so we worked together in order to get this 15% increase across the board for all of these projects to cover those cost escalations that had put many of these projects in jeopardy.
1: Representative, did that require new legislation, new appropriations, or was the money somewhere else? Uh, I guess that's the question.
5: Yeah, no, it's a great question. So we, you know, we looked at this, we looked at a legislative solution to see if that would be the most uh, expeditious and, and the right way to proceed. Um, we talked with the Healy Driscoll administration to see if there might be funding available that we could use, um, and, and through the budget process, actually, uh, Senator Cumberford and I both raised this, uh, during the budget hearing in Gloucester to say if the Healy Driscoll administration can work with us to provide this funding, it would be a lifeline for our communities. Uh, and as a result of all of this, uh, the executive office for administration and finance uh, approved the request by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners to increase the amounts of those awards. So this was existing money that was out there. And thankfully, uh, I just want to thank the you know, the Healy Driscoll Administration and the Office of Administration and Finance for working with us to identify those funds because there wasn't time to wait. Uh, If we didn't do this now, there was a really good chance that some of these projects would not move forward.
1: On that optimistic note, we'll leave it. We've been speaking with State Representative Natalie Blay, representative from the 1st Franklin District, who is with us every month. Thank you so much for your time, your effort and your leadership. We really appreciate hearing from you today and congratulations on really some amazing projects and legislation that you are moving forward and have seen to fruition. Really, congratulations.
5: Thank you both, good to see you.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMB.
8: Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. GreenfieldSavings.com. The Western Mass Business
0: Show with Tara Brewster, WHMB. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered
2: six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit GazetteNet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786.
0: You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP.
6: Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 8.15, 12.15, and 4.15.
0: When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com.
9: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member,
1: Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont
0: maple liqueur.
10: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: And this is our Friday segment, Artbeat, with Donnabelle Casas, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donnabelle, the microphone is yours.
9: Good morning, Bill and Buzz. Thank you for that. For all of you riding on the Northampton Rail Trail this weekend, you'll notice some new things along the trail. There are these little boxes, and they're this exciting new project. It's called the Tiny Art for All Gallery Project. And here today, Kim Carlino is going to speak about it. She is the co-founder with uh, another member of the community. And we're so excited to see what's happening. Welcome, Kim
4: great thanks for having me
9: now if you've seen those little libraries it kind of reminds me of those little library um boxes that are popping up all over the place who started this idea it's such a great idea to kind of bring art to the people which i'm all about
4: yeah yeah so they're they're popping up kind of all over the country Um, During the pandemic, I saw this, um, you know, some really fun projects through social media and I thought that that would be such a great thing for our community and a great new context for artists in our community to kind of show their work and so, you know, they're popping up in Canada and all over the United States and it's just a really fun movement to get miniature and small art out into the community.
9: Now, this is a collaboration with Freeman Stein, who I know is part of the Northampton Rail Trails. Um, Tell us about that collaboration. Sure. So
4: we met in 2021 when I was doing um, an asphalt project for the bike trails in Florence. And he is a board member of Friends of Northampton Trails and started the Art on the Trails subcommittee and I just started talking about like, oh, I've seen this idea. I think it would be it really cool. We've been talking 2021 about this and just kept talking and bringing more people in t- to collaborate on it. And, you know, Friends of Northampton Trails is a huge sponsor for us, um, finding builders, um, uh, finding funding for materials and really kind of getting the word out. And Now that they're up, they're going to be doing all kinds of really cool programming, um, like bike tours and artist talks and, you know, bike curator tours. Like, there's a lot of really fun programming that's um, going to be coming.
9: Now I hear there are over 30 artists and art institutions from across the region doing these site-specific exhibitions on the bike trail. Can you tell us whose work we'll be seeing and how do we interact with these boxes?
4: Sure, so the first uh, five artists, which will, their exhibitions will be up for two months. So each one is up for two months at a time. Um, They're uh, Mike Medeiros, um, Luke Cavanaugh, Anne Sooth, and Martha Burkett, um, Lynn Sisler, and Rachel Thurn. Um, we also have the University Museum of Contemporary Art that will be doing a curatorial project. We have the um, Northampton High School students who will be doing two different projects. Nice. We have homeschool group and just lots of other artists from the community and, you know, even as Bar is a couple artists out towards Boston, uh, but mostly uh, local local artists. And you know each project is really different. And um, you know you can when you show up to each gallery, there's a little QR code at the front, and that links to directions uh, specific to the project. You know some have. note-taking that you can leave a response some have specific interactive qualities and so you know i i hope that you'll travel along and experience kind of each artist project and uh and participate can you go can you go
1: back for a sec and just tell us a bit with a bit more specificity where these are where we can see them where we can hook up with them on the bike trail
4: sure sure Good point. Um, so it starts. It's just the segment between King Street and Bridge Road by Look Park. That section of the bike trail for now. Hopefully, they'll grow. The project will grow. Um, but uh, the first one, uh, which is at Stoddard and um, State Street in Northampton, that's the first location at that entrance of the bike trail um and then there's one on straw avenue by pedal people the um there's also one by hatfield drive um on that part of the bike trail north maple street and then the bridge road location so they're all within like a two and a half mile walking distance
1: and was there a theme that the artists were given in terms of what they were trying to create or was it whatever inspires the artist and that's what ends up in these in these uh, displays
4: yeah we wanted to see given this container what the artists would come up with and so the the only real theme that they had to interact with was a community engagement component and each artist proposal took a really different um approach to that Theme, And so some have, you know, very interactive pieces where you take something and you you photograph it in a new location or, um, you know, you can take a piece and leave a piece, you can write poetry, you can send a postcard. You know, there's a number of different interactive components, but community engagement was the main theme that the artists were um, responding to.
9: Now these are neat little boxes. If you've seen those sort of pop-up libraries, there are these little, they all look like enlarged birdhouses on a stand. And they have a clear roof so that it's actually lit from natural daylight. And there's a door with a knob, so you can, and it's a clear door, so you actually are looking at the gallery space and you have the option to open the door and see what's inside. And so when you look inside, there are all these different things. So far I've noticed um, some ceramic pieces. I've noticed little tiny figurines in another one. I mean, they're just really curious looking things that you actually do want to interact with. So um, I don't know, I I love this project and I do hope it it expands. And so there's a special grand opening this Sunday, Kim. Tell us about that
4: so we're having our grand opening and that will be at gallery one and we'll be you know kind of acknowledging everyone that has participated we'll be talking about them the artists will be all on site so they'll be able to talk about their work and it's just um, a moment for um, the community to come together and celebrate more art in our public art in our town
9: now, uh, the, just to remind us, where is Gallery One again? It's from three to five p.m. this Sunday.
4: Yeah, Gallery One is at the intersection of State and Stoddard Street in Northampton, so it's the the King Street side of the bike trail there.
9: Nice. Now, if there if people want to go online to check out more information, where can they see some of the work?
4: Sure. So you can go to our website. It's Tiny Art for All Gallery. Is that with a four,
9: number four,
4: or F O R? F O R spelled out.
9: Okay.
4: (laughs) Yeah, and then you can, you know, also check in on our Instagram, which is tiny art four with the number four, um, all gallery, and that has all the installation shots, the the process of installing them, and um, just what, what you know little uh you know kind of like videos about each project and so that will continually being updated and we'll be having artist takeovers at different times and so that's a a fun in real time way to kind of keep on top of what's happening in them
1: and in just a very few seconds at the grand opening will the artists be talking will there be uh some uh, what's going to happen at the grand opening
4: yeah so the artists will be there they'll have a chance to answer questions about their projects and then you know that's at the beginning you know around like 3 15 and then we will um people can take a walk and check out all the other ones so
9: we hope you join kim carlino thank you so much tiny art gallery for all check it out online it's a great project i hope you check it out this sunday Kim,
1: awesome. Car- thank kim- you so much Kim Carlino, thank you so very much. Donna Casas, thank you for bringing us. Kim Carlino, again, I really appreciate it. I can't wait to see this art project.
4: Okay, great. The beat goes on.
2: The beat goes on.
9: The drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain.
0: Find local news and local talk for The Valley.
9: It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts.
6: Pets and people. They belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit dakinhumane.org.
0: WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD Two Turner's. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
2: And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. Um, there is uh, so much going on today. I thought that the headline a couple of days ago, I would have expected that the headline was going to be that a few people in the House of Representatives can actually thwart the ability for the House to do its business and can force an adjournment. I thought that was going to be the story.
1: And it's a very interesting story. We'll go into it with uh, Congressman Jim McGovern, who will be with us next week. We're going to discuss how the Rules Committee actually decides, determines what business, if any, will go before the House of Representatives to the floor of the House. We'll talk to the representative about that next week.
2: So I thought we were going to lead with that important story, but then another branch of government, the judicial branch of government, yesterday an amazing, surprising opinion ordering Alabama to uh, draw its district in a non-discriminatory manner. I thought that might be the lead story. (laughs) But then what happened is the 45th president of the United States was indicted. A grand jury issued the indictment, and he will be uh, reigned on Tuesday, I understand, or at least we'll see uh, what's happening on Tuesday. So uh, one escalating story, all three branches of government, big stories. Uh, Meanwhile, um, and we're going to get to that. We're going to have a constitutional scholar, uh, Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller will be joining us to talk about um, the indictment, to talk about the important case that came out of Alabama uh, that that the Supreme Court determined yesterday. Um, At the same time, uh, years ago, we were all focused on uh, nuclear power, on uh, enriched uranium and its uh, 200,000-year half-life. And uh, sort of that was a core issue. I used that no pun intended, core issue um, for so many years. But for some of us, it's sort of been pushed to the back burner um, (laughs) during so many other important stories. But for some of us, it is uh, super important and affects their lives all the time. I think for all of us, it should be considered super important and life-affecting. Right now, there is uh, an event that's planned tomorrow which is really important. It's planned by the Ohio Nuclear Free Network, and with us from Ohio, where I think smoke, speaking of the environment, smoke is uh, everywhere in the Middle East, is Terry Lodge.
1: Middle West, actually.
2: Middle West. Did I say Middle East? <laughs> Terry Lodge from the Middle West, the Midwest. Um, attorney Terry Lodge, who is uh, one of the organizers of this important event that's going to happen tomorrow. Hello, Terry
11: hello and uh, and welcome from the uh, eastern part of the midwest
2: <laughs> thank you for and,
11: and yes i do apologize in advance for my uh, clearing my throat because yes the smoke has been bad here where in ohio uh, are you i am in toledo which is in the northwest the the event tomorrow however is in Piketon, which is uh, about uh, 40 miles north Ohio River in southern Ohio.
2: And is that near Columbus, Ohio?
11: It uh, it's about eighty miles south of Columbus. Yes. So and we are so go ahead.
2: No, I was just gonna ask you to tell us about the event.
11: So the event is a a forum that is organized by our grassroots organization um, that will feature three different presentations. One of them is Dr. Michael Ketterer who is a retired chemistry professor from Northern Arizona University, who is a, a remarkable grassroots scientist, has been taking field samples for a number of years around many present and former Department of Energy installations. These would be uh, installations across the country where uh, either uranium has been enriched for commercial nuclear power plant fuel, which is kind of the case at PIKIN, but also around other DOE installations that have been part of the Manhattan Project and the subsequent Cold War nuclear weapons uh, chain of processing and, and bomb building.
2: And I'm going to interrupt you, Terry Lodge, not that I want to hear about the other panelists. You have an incredible panel uh, compiled, but let's talk about what the issue really is. Tell us about what has gone on for so many years at Piketon and what the concern is that you're going to be addressing tomorrow.
11: Well, in its first uh, incarnation, beginning in the mid-50s, uh, the, it, it's called Ports, the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion uh, Project, located at Piketon, which is a small village of about 2,000. In any event, at Ports, which is the common name for the place, uh, nuclear fuel for commercial nuclear power plants was enriched for many, many years. Um, there were also occasional projects that are not well documented that the DOE, the, the Atomic Energy Commission, and later the DOE would commission be done at Piketon. That's uh, the Department of Energy. Out dangerous ra- radioactive material. So right. the, So the story is this: there is decades of contamination, um, and and Dr. Ketterer has has scientifically verified. Uh, up to uh, 10 to 12 miles downwind of the site that there are measurable levels of uh, signature isotopes from the plant that um, in fact there are is considerable concern over the public health implications which in turn is backed up by a second presentation tomorrow which is Joseph Mangano, an epidemiologist from New Jersey is going to um, present his report and evidence that suggests very strongly that uh, half a dozen counties in the downwind zone from the port's plant have very considerable and statistically very significant spikes over the last couple of decades of cancers that are associated with radiological poisoning and contamination? My part of the presentation tomorrow is to talk about the future uh, at ports, which has been somewhat decommissioned, but now is the site of two nuclear weapons-associated plants and where depleted uranium is purified for use in nuclear weapons and where what is called high-assay, low-enriched uranium is being enriched up to about a 20 percent U two thirty five uranium content.
2: Well, no, let me let me just let me just for from my understanding, this is what I've learned that there's this seventy year legacy of enriching uranium and uh, plutonium and uh, other uh, radio isotopes, and now there's a serious threat to not only nature but human lives for miles downwind. But on top of that, this new radioactively dirty industry are being located at ports, producing depleted uranium for tanks and artillery shells and uh, machine gun bullets um, and as components for nuclear weapons. So tomorrow, your event is going to have an epidemiologist, it's going to have a uh, industrial chemistry professor and enforcement scientist at the EPA and yourself talking about this new secretive Ohio Development Authority, um, and the dangers, the inherent dangers to not just that region, but the entire country and world from these practices, which uh, we haven't seemed to learn to abate. Is is that a fair right. statement?
11: Hi, very fair.
2: Yeah. So, uh, Bill, I know you were you had something for Terry Lodge. Okay.
1: So, Terry, here's my question. This has gone on for many, many years. This— industry that has as its residue this dangerous nuclear waste. Has there been federal and state attempts to protect the public, and how and why have they failed?
11: Well, interestingly, Dr. Ketterer revealed some results in 1918, pardon me, 2018, wow, uh, that resulted in the closure of a middle school two and a half miles from the port plant, permanent closure. The school is going to be rebuilt um, and possibly relocated. But the DOE has belatedly uh, funded a study that thankfully was overseen by a group of local public officials, including the Pike County Health Commissioner. And that study result just came out in the past week and suggests that out to a six mile radius from the plant there are measurable amounts of radio radio isotopes that are fingerprinted back to the plant so the DOE is very sluggish and is very unwilling to talk about this to come clean uh, and certainly to they, they there will be great reluctance to discuss the next topic which we believe will be uh, massive ongoing health testing and reparations frankly um, so yes, this is it's going to be a, a very long running political controversy. This is a this is Appalachia, Ohio, and the jobs at ports pay very well. Uh, although I wonder how many workers survive to collect their retirements. Um, but the problem is is that DOE runs dirty operations and they locate in rural places where jobs are precious and where they believe that they can get over on the population.
1: Well, then tell us more about that. This is in Ohio. Is this a problem in sites across the country, and if so, where?
11: Yes. Yes. Irwin, Tennessee, is another site that Dr. Ketterer has been uh, gathering and sampling uh, radio, well, in, in, he's been processing information.
1: And, and let me interrupt. This is this is this is, this is from uh, manufacturing facilities for yes, arms. For, for there, these are nuclear power plants. Where is this waste coming from?
11: The, this waste tends nowadays to come from the defense side of things. Um, the Irwin, Tennessee plant, for instance, is a site of nuclear fuel services which for decades, again, since the 50s, has been processing and enriching to very high levels uranium for use in the nuclear navy, but, but is about to undertake a new large contract to purify already highly enriched, 90% enriched uranium for use in nuclear weapons. Um, it's, a, it's another community that there has been a lot of uh, contamination. Uh, Dr. Ketterer has also taken samples around the former Rocky Flats site, which is between Denver and Boulder, Colorado, um, and is now, uh, ironically, a national wildlife refuge with measurable samples of plutonium in the soil and other isotopes. Um, There are many other DOE sites in New Mexico, in uh, Hanford, Washington, many sites across the country. The, uh, The philosophy behind the Manhattan Project was among other things to politically sell nuclear weapons and ultimately, by the fifties, nuclear power by distributing various chain of supply factories throughout the country. Multiple so, districts.
2: Yeah, I mean it is so. We we could go on forever. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go on forever. We it would um, tomorrow's event sounds really important. It's going to happen at twelve forty-five. Eastern Time. You can find out how to log on to the event. It's live-streamed. You can go to the Ohio Nuclear Free Network. That's O N F N org, and hopefully you can connect then at 1245 Eastern Time, and you can watch Dr. Ketterer, uh, Joe Mangano, the epidemiologist, and Terry, Attorney Terry Lodge, um, and uh, learn more about this persistent Threat to our way of life, our life, our lives, our world—that um, these spent nuclear uh, uh, fuels and uh, that they pose. We also have learned from Terry and others that there's this new production line to purify depleted depleted uranium. What can people do other than tuning in tomorrow? What are you going to be asking people to do, Terry, in order to uh, stop the Department of Energy's policies? And places like this gaseous diffusion plant um, in Ohio?
11: Well, people can become, they can tune in more to the national budgeting controversies. The Department of Energy is getting a big boost, unfortunately, from the uh, recent budget reconciliation war. Um, The nuclear weapons program, because of the fallout, no pun intended, from the Ukraine crisis is getting a huge boost in this country. The DOE is pushing very hard in all of these congressional districts as, in, in order to, as a policy matter, uh, renew and expand our nuclear weapons arsenal. So people need to get informed and they need to uh, find out what uh, they might be able to do or if there are if there are DOE facilities near them and need to start confronting members of Congress as well as uh, the administration. The well,
2: Department I hope people do, and they, sh- and they should tune in. Tomorrow, go to the Ohio Nuclear Free Network. That's ONFN.org. Tomorrow, June 10th, that's Saturday at 1245 Eastern. You'll be able to uh, watch the live streaming Uh, really important discussion that's going to happen. Thank you so much for joining us, Terry Lodge.
11: Thank you, gentlemen. Good luck
2: tomorrow. Thanks for all you do. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with law professor uh, Bruce Miller, and we're going to be talking about indictments, and we're going to be talking about redistricting in Alabama and other matters. We'll be right back.
0: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
6: The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 and Hadley, and online at WinesickNursery.com.
9: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member
1: Bill Newman local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur.
10: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Hey, it's Joan Holiday. June means the annual diaper drive, and it's your chance to help local families here in the Pioneer Valley. Join WHMP, the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region, and the Leah Auto Group on Thursday, June 15th from 10 to noon at Leah Toyota on King Street, Northampton. Stop by Leah Toyota, donate disposable diapers, and help local families. Be part of this year's diaper drive. I'll see you on Thursday, June 15th, 10 to noon at Leah Toyota in Northampton.
0: A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5, 1400, WHMP.
6: Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
2: And welcome back to the show. Uh, There is just so much that we uh, may, that we should talk about. I think uh, we are so lucky to have uh, Professor Emeritus and Constitutional Scholar Bruce Miller to help us understand um, what's jumping, leaping off of the front pages into our psyches. And I guess uh, we're going to be talking about the indictment of the 45th president of the united states but first i think i want to talk about something that captivated our imagination a really important case that came out of the supreme court as it winds its way to the end of its session this year and who better to talk to us about it than you bruce miller
12: well I, I, thanks, thanks, Buzz, for uh, uh, that, uh, that 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 in- introduction. I'm, I'm I hope that's true. I'm not, I'm not sure that it's true. It's a new and important decision, and I think one of the most remarkable things about it is the sense of relief that many of us feel, simply because the Supreme Court did not overrule an important key previous precedent on the Voting Rights Act.
2: So let's talk about what the issue was that the Supreme Court was confronted with. What
12: the issue was in the Alabama case uh, was uh, what we might describe as a racial gerrymander. Uh, We've seen a lot of talk about gerrymanders, and we've seen the Supreme Court in general say hands-off for the federal courts when it comes to the design and look of voting districts, that those are entirely subject to the political process, no matter how unbalanced they get. With respect to gerrymanders that limit African-American voting rights and the voting rights of other racial minorities, the law is necessarily different.
2: So let's just set the table. Alabama has seven
12: Alabama has, has seven districts.
2: Right. So that means they have seven representatives in the House of Representatives. It has a 27% black population. Absolutely.
12: So what was the problem? And the population had actually grown from roughly 21%, 22% to 27% during the decade of the teens. The problem was that uh, there is only one a majority African-American district among those seven. Uh, So roughly half of the proportion that you would expect from the African-American share of the population. And the question was whether or not that violated the Voting Rights Act's prohibition against racial discrimination in voting rights. Well, more specifically, Bruce, what the court was asked
1: to decide was whether or not the Alabama redistricting or districting plan violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Exactly right. And this is important because what the Supreme Court has done, what the Roberts Court has done, is destroyed over half of the Voting Rights Act. It did that years ago by essentially gutting Section 5 we're going to ask you what that is in a second. Sure. And without Section 5, then all that was left yes. of the Voting Rights Act was Section yes. 2. Yes. So tell us about Section 5 you and bet. then tell us why this – this. Uh, avenue of relief through Section 2 matters so much. I know it sounds a little down in the weeds, but this really
12: matters. It it is in the weeds, but the distinction is not too hard to draw. Section 5 was the part of the Voting Rights Act that was at stake in the uh, uh, infamous and important decision uh, Shelby County County versus Holder from about a dozen years ago. Section 5 uh, required all of the jurisdictions which had historically engaged in voter suppression of African-Americans, and that was many of them, to pre-submit to the United States Department of Justice any changes in the voting rules that they wanted to adopt. The Supreme Court in which Shelby County— Which would have included County, gerrymandering and district drawing and line drawing and voting Includes everything, everything. everything. Includes everything. The Supreme Court held that that preclearance process was unconstitutional, beyond Congress's power, because racial discrimination is over. That's what the Supreme Court said. Yes, the Supreme Court declared racial bias in America was over. It was done. We don't need preclearance. It's done. The South is a liberated zone of fairness and equity. Uh, Yeah, the South, and not just the South, uh, you know, everywhere. My old district in California engaged in rampant uh, discrimination. Um, I was administered a literacy test when I first registered to vote with great apology by my Republican registrar, who said she had to administer it to me so that she could administer it to, others, uh, to right. other people, and we knew who who those were. So this was a Southern problem, but it was a national problem as well. And, and Just, Chief Justice Roberts declared it to be over. And as you said, Bill, this put all the pressure on Section 2. Section 2 allows people who believe their voting rights have been violated to sue. They have to sue. No help from the Justice Department. If people sue, uh, they can still get relief from discrimination. Right. And to allow listeners to
1: have some understanding of how important that Shelby County case is and was. As soon as it was decided, all sorts of uh, impediments to voting uh, were imposed across these districts which now could do whatever they want without having the Department of Justice look at it. it was a free-for-all to decimate voting rights and, and it
2: literally it, it just uh, reversed time back to pre-voting rights Act pre-60s well,
12: it, it did and and significantly all of the efforts going on right now to change the rules for voting in the swing states were unleashed by the Shelby County decision. They would not be possible without it. So that was an extraordinarily important decision. And, and the question really was, was the other shoe going to drop? Was Section 2 going to be similarly crippled by the Supreme Court? Right. And if the Supreme Court crippled Section 2
1: as a practical matter, that would mean that the Supreme Court would have totally killed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Would,
12: would have, in, in effect, wiped it off the books. And, and, you know, it shows how far our expectations have dropped that I think many of us expected that that's exactly what was going to happen. Uh, and the reason I think we expected it is that the, the federal district judge in Alabama, uh, who enjoined Alabama's drawing of new districts after 2020, simply followed... Uh, the earlier Supreme Court case from the 1980s interpreting Section 2, but the Supreme Court stayed that decision and did not allow it to go into effect for the 2022 elections. So these rules that uh, Alabama drew have already been around the block once and, of course, produced the expected uh, 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 results. Now,
2: in terms of the surprising results that we got from the Supreme Court yep. yesterday, which we're going to talk about after the break, but before the break, an incredible thing happened. A three-judge panel from the Circuit Court of Appeals yeah. um, ruled two of those judges yep. were appointed by Trump. Yep. And what did they rule?
12: Well, th- that, was, that was the, the, the three-judge uh, district. It was a three-judge special voting rights court. And they ruled that the Alabama uh, uh, setup was, un- was in fact unconstitutional. And that's what the Supreme and, Court And the Supreme can... Court affirmed that decision. Um, and with, with Chief Justice Roberts writing the opinion and I think emphatically reinstating the law as we understood it. And we expected him, him of all people, to vote to overrule it. He, he also uh, brought along with him uh, Justice Kavanaugh.
1: Yeah, and we should point out, this was a five-to-four decision. The three liberal justices voted that the Alabama... Uh, plan was a violation of the voting rights. And then there was John Roberts, this Chief Justice, and Justice Kavanaugh. That's how they got to five votes. And the question that is raised, I think that Buzz has just raised with you, Bruce Miller, is why did the Supreme Court do that? And I want to share with you right after this break what an Opinion piece in The Times says today by a professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, uh, Richard uh, Hassan, who talks about, well, let me give you two sentences and then we're going to come back and discuss it. The ruling in this case disrupts the narrative that the, the court is relentlessly revolutionary in its conservative jurisprudence. Chief Justice Roberts has long been very much an institutionalist. What does that mean, and why did this decision come out the way it did? And was it Roberts? Is it Roberts's attempt to achieve some semblance of legitimacy before the court loses it all? We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
6: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Bombex Center for Arts and Equity may have to meet new conditions set by the city's license commission in order to continue hosting live music events. Florence Congregational Church Pastor Marissa Egerstrom says the problem arose after a group of neighbors complained to the city about the type of events Bombex was organizing.
5: Struggling to understand if we are supposed to run all of our programming by a set of disgruntled neighbors and whoever they're working with at the city, you know, before we can just continue being a church. It's frustrating, it's demoralizing, it's deeply disappointing.
6: Possible restrictions include having no alcohol served on the premises at all, limiting the number of outdoor events to six per year, and ending events before the 11 p.m. cutoff currently observed. The Amherst-Pelham Regional School Committee says a tentative agreement has been reached with educators on a contract. The agreement calls for annual 3% cost of living adjustments and annual seniority increases of about 3.5% to 4%. The deal comes after 18 months of negotiations and is subject to approval by the Amherst-Pelham Education Association. The Healy-Driscoll administration announced that 27 restaurants and food trucks have been selected to participate in the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program Restaurant Meals Program. The new Restaurant and Food Truck SNAP Program will federally certify the establishments to expand food choice options and food access points to the community.
0: Sun cloud mix still a smoky haze out there. Take it easy if you have respiratory challenges and we expect some scattered showers chance for a shower in the morning scattered showers even a thunderstorm or two this afternoon a high of 64 to 68 chance for an early evening shower tonight then variable clouds overnight low 46 to 52 sun cloud mix tomorrow chance for showers low 70s low 80s and dry on Sunday. I'm 22 News storm team meteorologist Brian Lapis 1015 WHMP. Find local
4: news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives, 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts.
10: You love your car, we all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com.
8: You may be getting fewer robocalls these days, but chances are you're being flooded with robo-text. In a recent study, RoboKiller found Americans received nearly 226 billion spam messages in 2022, a huge increase over the previous year. If you have a retirement savings plan like a 401k or IRA, you may be unaware of the vast changes that have been made to rules governing these accounts. The SECURE Act 2.0 passed by Congress at the end of last year contains at least 90 changes to retirement savings plans. Only a few will go into effect this year. With Memorial Day behind us, the busy summer travel season has officially begun, with TSA airport volumes already exceeding pre-pandemic levels. The travel app Hopper says some airports are more prone to disruption than others, with Chicago's O'Hare Airport the worst. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at consumeraffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
0: W H M P.
1: We continue our conversation with constitutional law professor emeritus at Western New England University School of Law, Bruce Miller. We've been talking about the decision of the United States Supreme Court yesterday with regard to the Alabama districts and the congressional districts. And I want to share with you, Bruce, a sentence or two from a piece written by Richard Hansen, a law professor and political uh, scientist as well at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. And he says this, the big mystery about the decision is why Chief Justice Roberts would write an opinion confirming that race-based remedies in politics are sometimes appropriate, given Chief Justice Roberts' role in 1982 as President Ronald Reagan's point man opposing the expansion of Section 2, which is the part of the Voting Rights Act that he specifically endorsed yesterday. Goes on the mystery, also includes his 2013 opinion in the Shelby County versus Holder case, which we've been talking about, which struck down as unconstitutional Section Five, the other crucial half or more of the Voting Rights Act, and as well his numerous recent decisions reading the Voting Rights Act narrowly. What happened? And he proposes this. So I'd like your comment on. It is possible that he, Just Chief Justice Roberts, had a change of heart
12: but it's more likely that his institutionalist side kicked in. Your thoughts? Uh, My sense is that it might be a little bit of both. Um, I think this is a very, very important piece of evidence that something we were talking about on Monday really matters, and that is public criticism of the court. I think the court listens. Um, I think they're aware uh, that since the founding their legitimacy has depended on public acceptance of their decisions. And they've seen a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, public criticism. Probably more, we had a burst of it after Bush against Gore, but probably more than at any time since the New Deal. I think Chief, Chief Justice Roberts is deeply attuned to that. So the institutional legitimacy part matters, but I don't think it's sufficient to explain I think he also has to have changed his mind somewhat because in his previous decisions, previous opinions, as in Shelby County and also the school desegregation cases from Seattle and Louisville, where he precluded uh, race, taking consideration of race in order to achieve racial desegregation. That was put out of bounds. He said the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race Is to not take race into account at all. Even if it's
2: remedial, even if you're trying to,
12: especially if it's if it's remedial. And he also was relentlessly ahistorical. That if you take into account historical and continuing social practices of discrimination, there's no end to it. And what we need to do is put race out of our consciousness. In this case, he says you have to take race into account in order to remedy racial discrimination. Now, we do have a statute here from Congress that requires it, but I think many of us expected that he would be prepared, as the dissenters were, to declare the statute unconstitutional for that reason. So I think it's really some of both. I do see some change in Roberts. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe I'm b- too hopeful here. in thinking Are we that, able
2: to forecast as a result of having read this opinion, yep. Bruce Miller, like, which gerrymandering is going to be deemed acceptable and which gerrymandering is—that is, which squiggle, when we draw a district, yeah. that eliminates a black majority in yep. that district, yep. are we going to say—is the court going to say is okay versus which is not?
1: Well, we should, We should clarify. The Supreme Court has made absolutely clear gerrymandering, political gerrymandering, is absolutely just fine with this court, and they're going to do absolutely nothing about it. The question you raise, Buzz, is what about gerrymandering that is race-based, and can you have a race-based remedy to race-based uh, political gerrymandering?
12: Yeah, yeah, I, and 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 I think there, Buzz, it's a great it's a great question uh, because I think the answer is, is somewhere is somewhere in the middle. Um, the standard set by the old case that the court reaffirmed here, uh, 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 the case from 1986 basically is looking at th- at three things, and two of them are, are pretty easy to to I- identify. One is, do you have an African-American community that is uh, geographically concentrated and politically cohesive? That is, they tend to have the same preferences in whom they vote for. Um, and um, are they enmeshed in a larger white-dominated jurisdiction where white people never vote for the candidate preferred by black people. Those are empirical things that we can test. And in Alabama, they were true beyond belief. So the Alabama case, in a way, was an easy case. The third part of the, of the standard from this earlier decision is can you draw a normal, regular district that would provide a, a black majority? A new district that would. What's a normal, regular district? There, what we've got here is is the is the problem of the gerrymander. Generally, how do you tell what a normal district is? Some of it is what does it look like. Well, part of it. Is, stop there for Bruce yeah. for a minute, if you would, please, sure. Bruce. Because what we're talking about in terms
1: of racial gerrymandering and diluting the voting power of. Uh, African-Americans and other minority groups is what's called packing and cracking. Exactly. So why don't you explain that to our listeners, if you would, please, and then say, well, if there is packing and cracking, why can't there be a racial remedy to the racially induced prejudice and bias that's being incorporated into new voting maps? You bet.
12: Packing and cracking is the way you gerrymander, racially or otherwise. And what that that means, the packing part, is if, if the designers know that there's enough black people in their state that there has to be at at least one black district. What they do is they try to draw that district so that it includes every black voter, or as many as they can. And then what they do... They pack them into one district. Pack them into one, that's the packing. So they can only
1: only influence one One,
12: district. and And then what you do is you divide all of the others... Uh, the other African American voters in the other districts where they will always constitute a minority. That's how you can have an outcome where seven districts, uh, 27% African American population, and only one. And what the way is seven,
2: seven representatives will end up being one, white right, right, and one of right. color. The,
12: the, the historically most concentrated black part of the state in, in Alabama, the so called Black Belt, named for its soil. Um, was deliberately uh, divided by the, the Alabama legislature. That is, instead of having a district that represented the Black Belt, which would have been sort of politically natural, highly concentrated co- community with similar political interests, they divided the Black Belt in half and, with the result that uh, just, just under half of the uh, one district was African-American and just under half... Of the adjacent one was African American. Uh, North Carolina legislature has done the same thing in Asheville, wonderful town, one of the most progressive towns in the world. They they have no democratic representation because the whole city has been packed and cracked, and that's that's how you do it. And and what Roberts says uh, in in this decision is. Uh-uh, no more. You cannot pack and crack when it comes to race. And that's what the Tennessee legislature did with Nashville. That's right, exactly right. Nashville similarly similarly treated.
2: Well, we could go on forever. This is such an important case and, and frankly, such an important surprise. Um,
1: and I want to come back. I know we're going to take a break. When want to come back. I want to know what is the effect going to be on other states? Will this, in fact, potentially unless, at least uh, determine... Which party is going to control Congress after the next election?
2: But I also want to focus on a little indictment that happened yesterday that is worth noting. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 1015, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. WHMP.
9: Are you or someone you care about struggling with mental health or substance use? The Behavioral Health Helpline is here for you. Call 833-773-2445, and we'll work with you to find the help you need. Free, open 24 seven, and available in over 200 languages. No insurance needed. 833-773-2445. A service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts operated by the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Partnership.
10: Are you gonna be growing tomatoes? Growing salad greens? A big garden? a few pots on the deck. Go to the Atlas Farm Store and get organic starter plants. Get tomatoes, get basil and other herbs. Get cucumbers, kale, eggplant and melons. It's so easy to grow with organic plants and seeds from the Atlas Farm Store. Add color too with flowers and hanging baskets. Plan ahead, plant ahead and grow all summer with the Atlas Farm Store in South Deerfield.
0: .com You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg WHMP Okay,
2: before we turn our attention to the 45th president, uh a grand jury having been dis- having decided to indict him on federal charges. I just want, so what should listeners take away? from their understanding of what happened at the Supreme Court yesterday with respect to this Milligan case, the Alabama case? Uh, a,
12: a couple of things. I think the most important thing is that what we, the people, have to say about the Constitution matters. The court hears it. There is a discourse, a dialogue. This is, I think, the point that Rick, Rick Hassan makes uh, in the op-ed uh, that that Bill just read from. So, you know, you guys say, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Walking the walk can matter.
1: I, I think, Bruce, and I appreciate your, your comment on this before we get to the indictment against Trump, that, let me back up. There's an old adage comes it comes from a cartoon that the Supreme Court follows the election returns. And it does. And in this day and age, to update that, that quote, the Supreme Court follows public opinion. And it matters. And I think that Roberts felt and feels that he was on the verge of being uh, put in a historical context of being the leader of the most racist Supreme Court uh, since Plessy versus Ferguson. And that concerns him. Yeah. There there were two
2: recent polls. Both of them said that 17% is the number of people who will self-identify as having complete confidence in their Supreme Court, 17 percent, less than one in
12: five of us. Yeah, yeah. The second thing, and this is something to watch out for, uh, are we really going to have a terrible month of June despite this decision?
2: And
1: we could. And
12: we still could. But it means that— By that you mean— In terms of the Supreme Court.
2: Having— Yeah, yeah. Finishing their session by uh, issuing, uh, their issuing a
12: whole raft of terrible decisions from from a constitutional point of view, um, uh, and, and w- the one to watch out for related to this one is the affirmative action case um, I- uh, involving uh, admissions practices in colleges and universities, which every Are,
1: every 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 observer expects the Supreme uh, Court to destroy affirmative action, and race-based considerations for admissions?
12: I I still expect that, but I have to say that this decision gives me some pause, Um, especially the sensitivity to history and context shown by Roberts and Kavanaugh. Will we see that again? I think we might from Kavanaugh. I'm not sure we will from Roberts, Um, uh, but that's a significant uh, point to watch out for. Uh, myself and
2: about 200 yeah. million of my closest friends, yeah. it takes our breath away that that Justice Clarence Thomas was a beneficiary of exactly that policy um, that allowed him to rise to the level that he is at the Supreme Court. It, it's astonishing to me that he wouldn't recognize that.
12: Yeah, well, that's a comp- very, very complicated question, and and uh, uh, Corey Robin has written a wonderful biography, a, a judicial biography of Justice Thomas that. Helps to explain that and, and places uh, Justice Thomas in, 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 in a black nationalist context, which I think is, is, is a lot of force. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a mysterious character for sure.
2: Well, let me start with you, Bill. There was an indictment we learned of yesterday.
12: Yeah, so Trump's been indicted for how he's
1: handled the Mar-a-Lago uh, documents and what he did with them and what he instructed his lawyers to do with them. Uh, Trump's been charged with seven counts related to the mishandling of those documents, many of which are classified. Uh, Again, the indictment itself has not been unsealed, so we don't know for sure, but the charges themselves, uh, although unclear, uh, are obviously related to what happened at Mar-a-Lago. Trump announced on his social media site, Trump Social, that DOJ lawyers had informed his legal team that he'd been indicted, and that is exactly what happens. The lawyers are informed. The lawyers inform the client, and the client now has informed the rest of the country and the world. Exactly.
12: Your thoughts, Bill? Uh, I'm sorry, Bruce. Well, you know, I, I'm uh, I, I, none of us have seen uh, the, the indictment. I don't think any of it is public yet. We have what we've got is various people characterizing bits and pieces that they've seen. I just I sort of have two emotional reactions to the news, and they pull in opposite directions. One is great relief uh, that finally it, it has happened, uh, that a decision has been made, and that the decision is— to try to call former President Trump to account for abuses that are unique in our history. If we didn't call him uh, to account, we would, in, in effect, uh, uh, endorse collectively the proposition uh, that the, the President's misconduct cannot be reached, cannot be remedied, that he's beyond the law. I also feel uh, an impending sense of dread because I'm very concerned uh, that uh, this will, for various reasons, uh, be a test of our institutions that we might not pass. The heart of my concern there is uh, the importance of the idea of classified documents, the use of the Espionage Act, each of those realms uh, of, of classifying things in the world, has been largely abused by our government in the past. The classification system has, by and large, been a system of assuring secrecy. Now, in order to reach President Trump's profound misconduct, we're gonna see the prosecutors relying uh, on the importance of, of, of the fact that documents have been labeled secret. Um, I'm I'm very concerned about that. Espionage Act even worse. Uh, the Espionage Act has has by and large been used historically uh, to to punish uh, to punish whistleblowers. It has deeply unsavory origins uh, in the Red Scare's post World War II. which was what was used against Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Uh, We have remarkably strange bedfellows in welcoming the use of all of these tools to go after former President Trump. I hope that what we have is a compelling story of his abuses as opposed to something that looks like more technical charges. I think that story can be told, but I'm concerned, especially in light of the narrative flood that is already emerging from his side, Uh, that, uh, again, in terms of how the public sees this, that it won't be enough.
1: Are you afraid that the institutions, that the legal system is not really equipped to deal with the political fallout?
12: Yeah. In a word, I sure am. And what does that mean? Well, it it means that, uh, you know, when when many of us were deeply concerned back in the 2016 campaign, that if Trump were elected even once, that it might be the end of the constitutional structure and and our aspiration towards political democracy, incompletely achieved but worth trying, that it would mean the end of that. And his uh, persistence, his ability to hang on and even to thrive in the face of everything has you know made made that test probably even even more in front of us now uh, than it, than it was then.
2: It's hard not to share your fears. I mean, this is a twice impeached president. The evidence in each of those impeachment it proceedings was overwhelming. Overwhelming that he had he had violated his office. Yeah. Repeated times for personal gain. Yeah. And both times we had a Senate that just thumbed its nose yep. at the rule of law. Yep. And uh, wouldn't even yep. we had a, a Senate Majority Leader who wouldn't even allow witnesses yep. and evidence to be presented to and, and, the trial. And,
12: you know, here it's better because because we're going to be in a court of law. But you know we're likely to have a trial right in the middle of the campaign. How does that work?
1: Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. And what will the jury think? Yeah. And how will it be selected? Yeah. In Florida. In Florida.
12: Yep. Who's the district judge going to be? We don't know. And that usually is randomly assigned. Yep. Right. I mean, randomly assigned. Some judge
1: wakes up tomorrow Uh, or or on Tuesday and said, "Well, this is what the uh, wheel." It's actually an electronic device. Used to be a wheel. Used to be an actual wheel. See who the judge was going to be. Wakes up and said, "Well, congratulations, Judge So and So. You now get to preside. You now are assigned to preside over the trial of the case of United States versus Donald J." Well, we
2: could remain hopeful that the rule of law is resuscitated and it performs the way we all hoped that it did. We can all be thankful that the Supreme Court gave us a glimmer of hope that uh, people of color are going to get representation uh, and be able to elect their own people. But we're mostly thankful that we have Bruce Miller who could come and explain things to us. Bruce, thank you so much. Oh,
12: thanks, guys, for having me.
2: And thank you all for listening. This is Talk the Talk. Remember, walk the walk.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. It's the all new Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2 brought to
8: you by realtor craig della over 18 years experience selling valley homes within 10 blocks of rail trails near parks and other conservation areas or antique and historic houses
0: contact craig at northamptonrealtor.com innovator the western mass business show with tara brewster only on whmp
5: for some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit W-H-M-P us online H-M-P at Northampton
0: at 2 Turners Falls, WHMP on Northampton Radio Group Station.
10: It's